Grace Church of the Valley, so great to be back, so great to see so many familiar faces and, and new faces. Um, I mean, what can I say? We, we love this place, uh, hard leaving the emotion and then even coming back, boy, just the emotion of being able to be back here with you and uh, we're so grateful for this church. Obviously, Pastor Scott, we've known him for many, many years. The entire Ardo family, uh, we love with all of our hearts. But uh, when we came here, we just fell in love with the elders, with the staff, with the people. And so it is good to be back. Uh, this church, I, I think, is just a special church, a unique church. And sometimes you need to hear that because I think you just get used to being here and being with the people. But you need to hear how unique this church is. Uh, I was just uh, with Pastor Demo's church um, Christ Community Church in Ripon last Sunday, preaching for them Sunday night. And so I see the fruit of the ministry here as you sent Demo out and you sent me out. It's going to be two years next month. And sending John Paul out and missionaries around the world and having the seminary here. But this church is making an impact for Jesus Christ and for that I am so, so thankful. Well, GCV is doing well. And this morning, all I want to do is just encourage you to excel still more. I believe that's why the Lord brought me here, to, to have you excel still more and to not be distracted. And I say that because there are a million ways for you to be distracted in our day and time. I just can't think of any time during my lifetime, 43 years, where things have been so chaotic and confusing in our world. I tore my Achilles playing basketball. My wife told me, don't play basketball. I disobeyed her, and look what happened. So husbands, listen to your wives. I tore my Achilles about five weeks ago, and I've just had my foot up and icing, and I've been watching lots of YouTube news, and I've just been getting discouraged watching all that's going on in the world, seeing how divided America is. It's like we're in this gridlock of social issues, there's the race issue and the gender issue and problems with our economy. On top of that, our country is divided over mandates and masks, pro-choice, pro-life, climate control. Our borders, if you've seen there in Mexico, are a mess. And something as simple as a boys' and girls' bathroom has become a battleground. And again, I don't remember in my lifetime it being as bad as it is. And all these societal ten tensions have metastasized into a dangerous polarization. And I think it not only threatens our U.S. democracy, but humanity as a whole. Well, what our country needs, what our world needs, listen, is not just better policies. It's not a better president. What the world needs is for us Christians to live like Jesus rose from the dead. That is what this world needs. The answer to the world's problems is identifying what the world's major problem is. And the world's major problem is unforgiven sin. And you and I, we have the answer to that. So when I think about those of you who might be involved in the political arena, I say yes and amen. Go change the policies. Go make all this nonsense and evils in America better. But one thing's for certain, all of us, every single one of us, if you bear the name of Christ, if you carry that name, all of us have been called 
to make people aware that Jesus rose from the dead and he's coming back. That is why we're here. That is why Jesus left us here and didn't warp us into heaven when we got saved. The fact that Jesus proclaimed his death, burial, and resurrection, the fact that he said he would ascend back to the Father and then did exactly what he did, it validates his claims. And it's a reminder to us this morning that we need to stay on mission. Your mission statements, right? Ours is very similar. We exist to glorify God. You say by exalting the Savior, equipping the saints, extending the kingdom, we're all M's. Magnifying the Lord Jesus Christ, ministering to his church, multiplying his disciples. That is why you and I woke up this morning. And that is what I want to focus our attention on is staying focused. And one of the best ways to do that is to be reminded of why you were saved in the first place. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at transformation. How we were transformed individually and even corporately. And I just want to remind you, especially you young people, now old people too, I want to remind all of you, it's not enough just to know the facts and the details about the events. You must have an encounter with the risen Lord of those facts and events. Because the only thing that changes us, the only thing that transforms us is a personal relationship, is an encounter with the risen Lord. And so for that, we want to turn to Acts chapter 9 and look at the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Turn with me to Acts chapter 9. And as you're turning there, let me just remind you how significant this story is. It's so significant that Luke wrote it Not once, not twice, but three times in the book of Acts. I think we can safely assume that this was one of the most monumental events in the early church. And the reason why the church expanded, the reason why the church grew, the reason why the church was so healthy was because of this man's encounter with the resurrected Christ. And it was his encounter with Jesus that transformed the persecuting Pharisee into a passionate preacher. So let's read Acts 9. We're going to go through verse 22. Here's God's word to us. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that it He was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground and Though his eyes were open, he could see nothing, and leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying." And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hand on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard many 
from uh, about this man, how, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my namesake. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me to you to regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he got up, and he was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. All those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not the one who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on his name? And who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priest. But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he please, please impress its precious truths on our hearts. Our main idea, if you're taking notes, is this. A personal encounter with the risen Lord will transform you. A personal encounter with a risen Lord will transform you. In our outline you have there in the bulletin, it should be easy to follow. When you've been transformed by the risen Christ, you have a new light, a new Lord, a new love, a new liberty, and a new labor. A new light, Lord, love, liberty, and labor. So the first result of an encounter with a risen Christ is that you have a new light. Now before Paul the Apostle was an apostle, he was actually Christianity's biggest antagonist. Look there in verses 1 and 2. It says, Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples, he goes to the high priest. He wants letters so that he can drag out the men and women. He is ravaging the church. Look, Paul was determined to bring the church to an end. He didn't want to just persecute the church. He wanted to put the church out of existence. And that description here that says that he's breathing threats and murder, it's this picture of a horse just getting ready to march into battle. He was possessed with a hatred for the church. And the text says right here, he was still breathing these threats. Just in chapter 7, it says that he was standing with approval over Stephen's death. That wasn't enough. Not one, all of them. Every single Christian must pay. Every single Christian must either be put in prison or put to death. His own testimony in Galatians 1.13 says this, For you have heard of my former way of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God, and he says this, beyond measure, and I tried to destroy it. He was willing to go to any extreme to get rid of the church. And so he goes, he gets authorization from the high priest and the council. He makes this 150-mile trip to Damascus, and he's hunting down believers, dragging them out of their homes, dragging them out of their place of worship, just like what we're seeing in Afghanistan. That's Saul. 
And as a committed Pharisee, he knew the claims that Jesus made, and they were repulsive to him. Paul thought it was blasphemous that this guy was claiming to be the king of Israel. The Jews, obviously, they, they longed for the Messiah. They, they were waiting for the Messiah, but it wasn't going to be this guy. It was going to be someone who came with military might that put down the Romans, that established the kingdom here on earth. And who was Jesus in Paul's eyes? He's a crucified criminal. Deuteronomy 21-23 says, Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. And he was hanging on a tree. So he must be cursed. The disciples must be brought to justice for orchestrating this elaborate lie because everyone knows they stole the body. Everyone knows that they're perpetuating this lie. They didn't see him come back from the dead. So Paul doesn't want his fellow Jews, the people that he loves, his family, following after this, this lie. That is how he saw things. In a word, you and I would say, he was blind. Saul was blind. He thought he had spiritual vision that was 20-20 when the reality was he was dead wrong. Wrong about Jesus. Wrong about the disciples. Wrong about how one is made right with God. And that was true of you and I before we came to Christ. Dead wrong about Jesus. We thought we knew better. We thought we had a better way. You see, before any of us comes to Christ, we must realize that we're spiritually blind and we need sight. And Jesus here wants to make sure that Paul never forgets that he was spiritually blind. Look at verses 3 and following. He says, as he was traveling, it happened that while he was approaching Damascus, this light from heaven flashes around him. He falls to the ground. Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. He gets up. He gets led away, traveling all the way back to Damascus. But it says here in verse 8, Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And he was there three days without sights. He could see nothing for three days. Pitch black, in darkness, by himself. You see, before Paul could experience this transformation, he had to be humbled. He had to be brought low. He had to have this face-to-face -face, face -face encounter with Christ to see his spiritual blindness. And you think Jesus could have done this any way he wanted to. Just like in Luke chapter 24, he could have came alongside Saul, like he did those disciples, and he, became, he, could have, he could have just explained to him, like he did those disciples, that he was a fulfillment of all the Old Testaments. But that's not how he did it. Instead, he knocks him off of his high horse. I love it. It's beautiful. The way that he does this, he doesn't start flashing a strobe light, but he reveals himself. This light that the scriptures talk about, I believe, is just a small little glimpse of his Shekinah glory. That same glory that led Israel in the wilderness, that same glory that Isaiah saw, that same glory that Jesus peeled back for just a brief moment on the Mount of Transfiguration, that is what Saul sees here. And I love this detail that Luke adds in Acts 26. When Paul gives his defense to King Agrippa, he says it was 
midday when this light shined bright and knocked me off of my horse. And you say, well, what light is brighter than the midday sun? It's the one who created the lights. He's brighter. In John 8, 12, Jesus proclaimed, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You see, Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, in all of his splendor, in all of his majesty, in all of his purity, in all of his glory, is too beautiful, too magnificent to behold with your own eyes. I think what blinded Paul on that sunny day was seeing Jesus for the first time for who he really is. One minute he's hunting down Christians, the next minute he's holding someone's hand as he's being led into the city. And for three days he's sitting in absolute darkness, just thinking and praying and wondering what is going on to him. But Christ had to show him his utter blindness. He had to give him spiritual vision. I want you to think back to the first time that the lights came on for you. I hated God. I was upset at God for taking my brother when I was 12, for giving my mom breast cancer when I was 19, for not being able to find any joy in this world. And I was opposed to God, but when I came face to face with Christ and the lights came on, what Paul describes in 2 Corinthians is true. It says this in chapter four and verse three, even if the gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. He goes on to say in verse 6, For God, who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And when you see that light, when you see Christ's beauty, when you see your sin, you see your darkness, you see your evil, and you see what that deserves, and then you see Christ, you are humbled to the dust. Well, what happens when these blinders come off? The answer is you're able to see. Everything begins to make sense. Why am I here? Why do I exist? What the world's about? You see yourself for who you truly are. You see Christ for who he truly is. And Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Look, if you're blind, you need to be given sight. If you're dead, you need to be given life. That is what happens when we encounter Christ. He gives light and life. And that's what happens to Saul. Ananias came to him and said there in verse 17, the Lord Jesus who appeared to me on the road by which you were coming, he has sent me to you to regain your sight. I think that has a double meaning there. And to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales and he regained his sight and he got up and he was baptized. This is where it all starts for all of us. We need to be humbled. We need to have sight. We cannot have a relationship with the living God apart from Jesus giving us this light. So when you encounter the risen Christ, you receive a new light, and that new spiritual vision allows you 
to see what you're in need of, and it's something else. It is a new Lord. Now, whether you realize it or not, because we don't use the lordship language, right? We live in a democracy. We don't have lords around here. But everyone, no matter what, has a Lord. You are bowing to something. You are serving something. You are worshiping something. And Paul makes that very clear in Romans 6. He says you're either a slave to sin or you are a slave to righteousness. There are no other options. And Saul had a master. It was the law. He was a slave to the law. Remember, Saul is a brilliant man. Educated, trained under Gamaliel. He is one of the greatest and most respected teachers in all of Israel. Not only was Paul a brilliant man with a great teacher, but he had a great mind. He was able to speak multiple languages Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, Latin. In modern day vernacular, he would have been a scholar of scholars, a double PhD in Judaism. In Philippians 3, turn there with me. I'm walking our church through Philippians. Just want to show you this. As as Paul gives his own testimony there in chapter 3 and starting in verse 4, he says, look, if anyone has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Paul had every right to boast in his own religious credentials, his own accomplishments. He he, he did that on his own, and he was proud of it. But later, he came to realize that all of that was rubbish. Look what it says there in verse 7. He says, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I might gain Christ. And you say, well, what, what was the change? Well, why the change in attitude? It's because he had an encounter with the risen Lord. That's what happens. All that you held dear to, all that you took pride in, all that you thought made you acceptable and right in God's eyes becomes absolute rubbish. You see, when you encounter the risen Christ, everything changes. Your interests change. Your priorities change. Your loves change. Your passions change. Your habits change. Anyone who knew you before and knows you now should say that person's lifestyle is dramatically difference. All those things that we love become distasteful now. They no longer satisfy because you realize that all the things you used to bow to and invest in and love with all of your heart were leading you straight to hell. You see, even though Saul had saturated himself in the scripture, he knew the scriptures well, he had this impeccable education, he had this amazing pedigree, He didn't even recognize his own Messiah when he showed up. That's why one of the most important questions that you can ask is the same question that Saul asked right here. Who are you, Lord? We know what the Pharisees thought of Jesus. He was born in sin, John 9. He had an unclean spirit, Mark 3. He was a troublemaker, a nuisance, a false Messiah, Mark 14. They thought he was deserving of death, Mark 11, 
And you say, well, did Saul share that same sentiment? And I say, oh, yeah. Obviously, he's persecuting the church. He hates Christianity. And his own testimony in 1 Timothy 1.13 says this, I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent aggressor. All of that because he rejected the lordship of Christ. And yet, he says also in 1 Timothy that despite all that opposition, and yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Look, when you encounter the resurrected Christ and see him for who he truly is, you must bow down low. We must be humbled. And when you do, you receive mercy You receive everything that will change you. The Bible begins to come to life. It becomes a treasure that's hidden in a field, a pearl of great price. You'll you'll sell everything to possess the words of life. We know after his conversion, he goes off to Arabia for for three years, probably with a copy of the Old Testament in his little knapsack. And as he begins to look over the Old Testament again, what he sees is Jesus is everywhere. Jesus is is in the tabernacle. Jesus is in the temple. He's in the Levitical offerings. He saw Jesus in the ceremonies, in the law, in the prophets. Everywhere Paul looks, he sees Jesus all over the Psalms. And now that Christ is Lord of his life and illumined and given him light, Paul begins to see and the transformation begins to take place. And it is dramatic. So that when he comes out of Arabia, he comes with all that theological knowledge. And everything that we have in Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and everything else comes along with him. That is because he saw the Lord Jesus for who he truly is. And that is what the Lord does to us. Not just to Paul, but to you and to me when he gives us light and he helps us to submit to his lordship. Look, you and I, were under different management. No longer the same Lord. No longer a slave to sin. We are a slave to a new master and it is the Lord Jesus Christ. Look, just as much as you do, I love Jesus as the Savior, but for so many years, I was content with just that. Jesus saves me from my sin, but I'm gonna live the way that I wanna live. I don't wanna go to hell, I wanna go to heaven, so I need Jesus as a Savior. You know what's interesting is that in the Bible, only 24 times is Jesus referred to as the Savior. You know how many times he's referred to as the Lord? Almost 700 times. A little bit of a difference there. When the Lord says something, we obey. That is what it means to submit to the Lordship of Christ. Nobody is saved, nobody is saved who does not make Jesus Lord of their life. When you encounter the risen Christ, you receive a new light, a new Lord, but there's something else. You receive a new love, a new love. The resurrected Christ changes our heart. You see, Paul thought that he loved God. He he thought he had affection for God, but he was wrong because when you truly love God, you're going to love his son. And when you truly love God, you're going to love the church. I heard Derek preach on that last Sunday. People think that the Apostle John is the disciple of love, the beloved John, and that is true, but Paul the Apostle was also the Apostle of love. You have 1 Corinthians 13 that many of you can quote. 
You have Romans chapter 8, what shall separate us from the love of God? Shall distress, tribulation, nakedness, famine, peril, sword? No. Oh yes, Paul knew the love of God. He was a man gripped by it. He says in 2 Corinthians 5.14, for the love of Christ controls us. But that's not how he started out. Now, he genuinely thought that he was doing everything that was a motivation out of love for God, just like we did. I thought I loved God. But God is the one who defines what love is. It is under God's terms. Now, how do we know that what Paul regarded as love was actually hate? Look, look there at the piercing question that Jesus confronted him with there in verse 4. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? All of Saul's hatred was directed at the bride. I love all you guys, but if you mess with my wife, you're going to have some problems. That's exactly what's going on here. He wasn't trying to find the Christians, reprimand the Christians. He was trying to rip their head off. You try to rip my wife's head off, see what happens to you. Jesus loves his bride. And here Saul is attacking the bride. So Jesus makes him blind, humbles him to the dust, and reminds him that the way that you treat my bride is the way that you should be treating me. What I love about this text, and it's very subtle, but it's there. Christ changes Paul's heart, and he helps him to understand what love is, and what grace is, and what forgiveness is, because that right there is the proper motivation. It's not just you better love, but let me show you what love is by loving you well. You say, Dom, where do we see that at? Well, here's the question. What's the first thing that Paul saw when he opened his eyes. What's the first thing that he saw? It was another Christian. Look there in the text. It was the face of Ananias right by his side. Yes, he went to go deliver a message. Yes, he went to lay down the truth for Saul. But you know what else he went to do? He went to put his hand on him and to love him and be affectionate Despite the fear, despite knowing all that Saul had done, and the first words that are uttered are, brother, Saul, brother. Not you barbarian, not you bonehead, but brother. Instantaneously, he wanted him to know that you are a part of the family now. You are one of God's own an adopted child, loved forever. This love is eternal. This love is passionate. This love is never-ending. And so P Paul experiences this love that comes from Christ through the conduit of Ananias. The text, is, it says he laid his hand on him. And I think when we read this scripture, we got to read it slowly and carefully and enter into the emotion of the moment. What an amazing display of love. Look, only an encounter with a resurrected Lord will enable you to love like that. I was abused when I was young. I had some bad things happen to me when I was young. 
I thought I loved, I did not love, I was not willing to forgive until the Lord forgave me. And then when I started to feel this foreign feeling in my heart of forgiveness and love, despite what was done to me, I thought, that's not natural. That's supernatural. And I can only do that because I've experienced so much love. That is what Saul experiences here. The risen Lord transforms our deepest feelings. The love of Christ reconciles relationships. He empowers supernatural forgiveness. It extends beyond every social, economical, cultural, generational, and gender barriers. That is what the love of God does. And don't you love it when you meet a new Christian, someone that you've never met before from the other part of the world, whether it be Uganda or Albania or in Seaside, If they love Christ, man, you love them, don't you? Instantaneously, your hearts are knit. It doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter who your parents are, what school you went to. If you have Jesus, brother, I have you, and you have me. I used to think, man, if you're not a Laker fan, I'm not feeling you. If you don't like Mexican food, I, I don't know if we can do dinner together. But if you have Jesus, man, I'll eat anything. We can't make any claim, church, that we even counter the risen Christ if we don't love one another. And you see that all over the scripture. You, you can't say God is present in your life and yet love be absent. The reason why we can't do that is because John tells us in 1335, this is Jesus' words, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. But by this the love of God was manifested in us, that God sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. And in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be a propitiation for our sins. Now, beloved, if God so loved us, listen, church, we also ought to love one another. When you encounter the risen Christ, you receive a new light, a new Lord, a new love, and it's a supernatural love, first initiated by God, then flowing out through us to other people. We have a new light, a new Lord, a new love, which also leads to a new liberty. Look there in the text, verse 17. So Ananias, he departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 5, Paul makes this connection between the love of God and the Spirit of God. He says, Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit which was given to us. Is there any better gift, church, than the Holy Spirit of God living in you? You have the Holy Spirit, God himself, taking residence in your life, in your hearts. That Spirit of God that frees us to love and to obey. Without the Spirit, you realize this, right? You have no power. You have No God-honoring affection. 
Later in his second letter to the Corinthians, Paul will say this in 3.17, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. When Paul received the light of Christ, he submitted to the Lordship of Christ. He also received the Spirit of Christ. And it would be a mistake to downplay just how dramatic this is. Because Paul did not uncheck the box that said Judaism and then check the box that says Christianity. I think that's how some people think of Christianity. They're just going to switch their religion. And that is not the case. There is no power to obey. There's no such thing as a Judaism 2.0. Everything that Saul was doing, meticulously keeping the law, was damning him to hell. The only way for him to properly obey was by the Spirit of Christ. And the same is true for you and I. Pastor Scott is teaching through Ephesians 2, and I love when he teaches Ephesians 2 because he always reminds of that story of when he saw someone dying, his next-door neighbor. And he says, no dead person comes back to life. We were all dead in our trespasses and sins. The only thing that brings us life is the Spirit of God. Oh, how sweet and wonderful it is to have the Spirit of God. Romans 8, chapter 2 says this, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. We have a new liberty because the Spirit lives inside of us. Now notice that Jesus didn't send Ananias just to tell Paul that he would have the Spirit, but he tells him that he would be filled with the Spirit. Paul tells us in Ephesians 5.18, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't you love when the Lord works through you? The Spirit working through you when someone comes to faith? You counsel someone in the power of the Spirit? You're reminded of the Scriptures? That's all because of the Spirit? The Spirit of God is our help. He's our comfort. He's our healer. What a gift. And you and I possess it. Possess him. All because Christ rose from the grave. And you say, well, Dom, how, how can I be filled with the Holy Spirit? Look, the, the Holy Spirit is available to everyone, not just the elite Christians. I remember when I first got saved, I told someone I was a Christian. They said, well, you don't have the Holy Spirit. I said, whoa, okay, what do I have to do? Well, you have to speak in tongues. Oh, Okay. You don't have to dance with snakes. You don't have to go to a Bible college to have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is for everyone. And you say, well, how can I have more of the Spirit? Well, it's as simple as this. Pray. Read the Scripture. The Spirit loves the Scripture, lives in the Scripture. He empowers through the Scripture. You want more of the Spirit? Be a man. Be a woman of the Word. And He will continue to clear your conscience. He will continue to confirm that you're a child of God. He will continue to convict you of sin. He will continue to comfort you in your time of need. And he will continue to heal you of all your hurts. That is the promise that we have from God himself, that the Holy Spirit will work in our lives. So when you encounter the risen Christ, you receive new light, new Lord, a new liberty, and also a new labor. Jesus not only revealed himself to Paul as Lord, but he also told him what he must do. 
All of Paul's desires and plans and goals, they changed when he encountered the risen Lord. He was on his way to Damascus to put an end to Christianity. But instead of putting Christianity to an end, he actually puts Christianity on the map. Look what it says. Jesus says to him, get up. Simple instructions. Significant implications. Because when Saul got up in that moment, his life is forever changed. He's no longer the same man. Before Christ, he was trying to break up the church. Now, he's on a mission to build the church. Before Christ, he labored to minimize Christ. Now, his life is all about magnifying Christ. He had new marching orders. Look at his commission there in Acts 9.15. He says, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. And flip with me to Acts chapter 22. I'm going to show you these two passages, first in 22 and then 26. But look at verse 14 in Acts chapter 22. Ananias repeats this to Saul here in verse 14. And he says this, The God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear an utterance from his mouth. And we get an even clearer picture as we flip over to Acts 26 and we learn specifically what Jesus wants of Paul. Look there in 26.16. Again, but get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you. To, an appoint, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, verse 17, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Now look at verse 18. Here is Paul's job description. This is what you're going to do. To open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Now, do you notice this? The very same thing that Jesus commissioned Paul to do is the same thing that happened to him. To be able to see, to be able to recognize that it is the Lord, the Spirit of God that moves you from the darkness to the light. That is only the Lord Jesus who has the power and authority to forgive sins. He says, Saul, go to your Jewish people. Go to your family. Go to your friends. Go to the Gentiles and tell them they need new light. Tell them they must have their eyes open. Tell them they must turn from darkness just like your eyes were open, show them their sin. Expose it through the word of God. Let them see their need for me. And just like they need new light, they need a new Lord. Let them know that they can turn and run from the tyranny of Satan. Tell them to turn from their futile ways. Tell them to turn from the world and all of their empty promises. Tell them to turn from empty religion and autonomy and self-righteousness and self-sufficiency. Tell them that if they repent from their sin, they could be forgiven forever. That I will throw their sins as far as the east is from the west. 
Tell them to submit to my lordship. Tell them that they can experience a new love, the love of God that was poured out in all of our hearts. It could be theirs. Tell them that they can be loved by the perfect one, by a powerful one, with unconditional love, love so moving, so stirring that it will change your life forever. And don't just tell them that. Tell them that they have a new liberty. They don't have to work their way to me. They don't have to be good enough for me but I will accept them by grace if they would just believe that I am he. Paul was obedient to the Lord's call in his life. Look there in Acts 9.20. This is before he goes off to Arabia to be personally discipled by Christ. This is before he connects with the other apostles in Jerusalem, but he wastes no time at all. Look there. And immediately... He began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, saying he is the Son of God. Skip down to verse 22. Paul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God. Let me prove it to you. No longer an antagonist, but an apologist. This was his new labor telling everybody, everybody, young, old, rich, poor, Jew, Gentile, Jesus is the only way, the only hope, the only God. Paul was convinced that he wasn't serving a dead Messiah. The centurion at the cross said, truly, he was the Son of God. Paul says, uh-uh, not was, is. He is the risen Lord now look, church, you say, that's fantastic. It's great to go through Paul's testimony, his conversion. But I just want to remind you, you've been commissioned to do the same thing. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. And you say, well, where do I get the power and the authority to do that? All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. You have the same message, the same gospel, the same light, and just like Paul's time, you have the same amount of people who are refusing to bow to the lordship of Jesus Christ, but you have the message of eternal life. Church, do you have a burning, blazing, passionate desire to see other people come to Christ, to experience these things that Paul experienced, to experience the things that you yourself have experienced. If you're a Christian here this morning, it means that you've had an encounter with the risen Lord. Are these evidences true of you? Have you experienced that kind of transformation? Have you experienced the light of Jesus' revelation? Have you made him the Lord of your life? Has he transformed your love? Are you now living in a new liberty and freedom? And what are you laboring to do? How are you, how are you spending your time? What are you giving your energy and your effort and your money to? Is it to see people eternally happy in the risen Christ? That is my prayer for Grace Church of the Valley that every single one of you who claim the name of Jesus would be about this mission. It is a worthy mission. 
It is the only thing that matters in this life. Life is short. Eternity is long. We want people to know and love the Lord Jesus Christ.